We should we should do that. We should have a party. Big party before practice period. Valentine's Day is a day to celebrate uh, love and relationships. A lot of the podcasts today are all about love and marriage and all that. <clears throat> so uh, before I go into talking about Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is our topic for the month, I will read you a short essay. Those of you who have practiced with us for a while know that it's not unusual for the Lion's Roar magazine, the Buddhist magazine, to get a hold of me and ask me to write something. They tell me what they want me to write, you know, and, and, then, and then I write it. And then uh, after I write it, I often share it with the Sangha. Uh, so in this case, they asked me uh, to write about relationships, specifically in relation to aging. Like when you get older, you know, what about relationships? So they asked me to write, because they're, they're doing a, an issue on aging. <clears throat> so they asked me to take the specific aspect of aging that has to do with relationships. It's not a long essay, so I'll read it for you. And uh, it's not, I don't know when it'll be published. It'll, it'll be a while, so you're getting this, this sneak preview. And, and they haven't edited it yet, so it may be slightly different when it gets published. But usually they don't change my writing too much. So this is my essay on uh, aging and relationships. I sometimes <clears throat> point out that my grandson, who is 14, is aging much faster than I am. Uh, in the last six or seven years, he has undergone enormous changes, whereas I have remained more or less as I was. So we're all aging some of us faster than others. But when we speak of aging, we usually mean growing old. Growing old, like anything else, has its advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantages are pretty obvious. The advantages, less so. To grow old is to have seen enough of life to have accumulated some wisdom. True, many older people are not very wise, but I think if you are lucky enough to have encountered the Dharma and taken it up, your practice as it ripens over time will give you a seasoned appreciation for life. One of the things that means is you will have known yourself and others in your life for a good long while. Friendship is one of life's greatest gifts and to enjoy it for many decades is to develop it to its fullest. As you grow old, your appreciation of your friends strengthens. And I say this from personal experience. In the light of Dharma practice especially, but this can happen without practice, of course, you go beyond the various slights, hurts, and competition that any friendship includes to a mature appreciation of the character of your friends and the longevity of the connection. A person who has known you and whom you have known for a very long time, and this includes family members, especially parents, 
can become a treasure through thick and thin, as they say. And there can develop a lovely and deeply affirming mutual respect. But these long relationships come with a price tag. Friends die. Parents die. Siblings die. And in our grieving their deaths, we come to love and respect them even more in some way, enshrining them in our lives. And doing this deepens our feeling for our own aging and dying and for our, for our own lives. Of course, death is the most salient feature of aging. And it is also, as our growing old reminds us, the most salient feature of all our relationships. The Buddha taught all meeting ends in parting. Truly understanding the meaning of death for our lives only comes with age. And, and to develop this kind of appreciation in the company of friends and relatives is an especially precious benefit of aging. I know that I appreciate my own relatives and old friends more now than I ever did. When I'm with them, my youth and indeed all the eras of my life and all the changes that have occurred in the world during that long time are all somehow present. It is an uncanny and remarkable feeling that only an older person could know. And the same is true, though, to a lesser extent, with friendships that are less long-lasting. To know someone for a year, five years, a decade or more is to share history. Some people may be fortunate, as I have been, to have uh, ha had a happy spousal relationship for a really long time. Kathy and I have been married uh, for 47 years. It goes without saying, a lot has happened in 47 years. We have two grown sons, and both of them also have families, children, and these dear associations sustain our lives as we, Kathy and I, sustain one another. And this is a very rare blessing. I know it's rare, but we do share it with a few of our Sangha friends. But again, a very steep price. And I have a lot of friends who have enjoyed just this only to undergo the almost impossible experience of losing their beloved. And I have been with them through that. I don't know how they do it, but somehow they do. 
and they eventually find new ways to live that somehow integrate the long years of the past. And I've seen this enough to appreciate the preciousness of my connection with Kathy and all the people in my life more and more and more as I understand with a lot of poignancy that we will not be together very much longer. The Buddha's path of awakening begins with the reality of suffering, old age, illness, and death. And the path he sought beyond that requires full appreciation of the nature of impermanence and of the clinging that all too often turns love into anguish and joy into fear. He defined a path out of the burning forest of suffering into the calm clearing of awakening. And this path involved the triple treasure of Buddha, the teacher, Dharma, the practice, the teaching, and Sangha, the community. And the community is really important. I've spent my whole life uh, practicing the American version of the Japanese Soto Zen of Dogen and of Suzuki Roshi. I guess y you all know that for a long time I was a full-time resident priest at the San Francisco Zen Center. I served as a co-abbot from 1995 to 2000 and then I retired. And since then I've been practicing with all of you through the Everyday Zen Foundation, which was founded, an organization we founded just for this purpose, so that I could keep practicing with all of you. And this has given me a chance to develop relationships in the Dharma with many, many, many people over many decades based on our shared practice together, our sitting together in silence, our efforts to bring Zen and Buddhist teachings into our daily lives, and our knowing one another in the light of these experiences. Over the years, I've come to see how important it is that we know each other, and how important it is for Zen practice that everybody find their own unique expression of the Dharma. And that's why at Everyday Zen from the very beginning, and I'm, I'm sure at this point many, many other groups do this too, we always have, instead of you know, questions to the teacher, we always have small group and large group discussions so that everybody has a chance to express the Dharma in their own way, in their own words. In our community, like, I suppose, all Buddhist communities throughout history, provides a powerful emotional and spiritual support for its members. Although the Sangha is open at all time to newcomers, it values commitment and longevity of practice and relationship. As new people come, many of whom are older and are attracted to the practice exactly because 
They need support and spiritual foundation for their aging. They are easily integrated. I, I hope this is true. I believe it's true. Easily integrated into our conversation and our sense of loving community, which is based not on our, you know, liking one another or our shared interests, but based on our shared commitment to spiritual practice. As the world turns, and in some parts of the world traditional communities break down, new communities spring up. And for us in the Western world, the Buddhist Sangha, an ancient form of community that has always supported people through all stages of life, is new. Since the Buddha taught impermanence and suffering above all else, our Sangha relations, especially for those of us who are older, are perhaps more poignant and honest than most affiliations, because the whole basis of our connection is honesty about and a willingness to express what suffering, old age, sickness, and death mean for us. We need one another. To age alone, without a family, and without living friends, is too difficult for anyone. The Buddhist Sangha is an open door for all those who need support, providing not only friendship and conversation, but a path of practice that goes all the way to the end. Well, so that's my essay. Not the, not the usual uh, Valentine's Day <laughs> offering, but <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> it's Valentine's Day, and, that, and that's what I have to say about relationships. <laughs> okay. A passage from Suzuki Roshi <clears throat> that follows right after the one that I read last week about posture. This one is about breathing. It, uh, well, I guess it, there's so many different editions that it doesn't matter. It doesn't help to give you the page number because it'll be a different page in the edition you have. I, I think I have the original edition here from 1971. When we practice zazen, our mind always follows our breathing. When we inhale, the air comes into the inner world. And when we exhale, the air goes out to the outer world. The inner world is limitless, and the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but actually there's just one whole world. In this limitless world, our throat is like a swinging door. The air comes in and goes out like someone passing through a swinging door. If you think, I breathe, the I is extra. There is no you to say, I. 
what we call I is just a swinging door which moves when we inhale and when we exhale. It just moves. That is all. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is nothing. No I, no world, no mind, no body, just a swinging door. So when we practice zazen, all that exists is the movement of the breathing. But we are aware of this movement. You should not be absent-minded. But to be aware of the movement does not mean to be aware of your small self, but rather of your universal nature, your Buddha nature. This kind of awareness is very important because we are usually so one-sided. Our usual understanding of life is dualistic. You and I, this and that, good and bad. But actually, these discriminations are themselves the awareness of the universal existence. You means to be aware of the universe in the form of you. And I means to be aware of the universe in the form of I. And you and I are just swinging doors. This kind of understanding is necessary. This should not even be called understanding. It's actually the true experience of life through Zen practice. Wonderful, don't you think? Uh, Suzuki Roshi is the best. Let's take a moment to breathe and practice that teaching. See if we can breathe in and breathe out just for a few moments and actually experience the swinging door. You and me, they were not even there. Just the swinging door. And if you're a person who has trouble staying with the breathing, there's a little practice that I know. You can use a word with your exhale. So that there are four words you say on four successive exhales. Deep. Slow. Soft. Quiet. Just repeating those words deep, slow, soft, quiet. Being with your breathing, moving, swinging door.
Now I'd like to uh, share with you the opening passages, just a few paragraphs of Dogen's very famous essay about Zazen called Fukan Zazengi. This is a short text that's often uh, chanted in Zen centers. And I know a lot of you know it well. Uh, Dogen wrote this very soon after he came back from China. And it was meant to be his introduction to the people of Japan of this new way of practice called Zazen. So this is, uh, I'm going to use a translation by Carl Bielefeld, who's a scholar. It may not be the one you're used to chanting, but I'll, I'll use this one. He translates the title as Fundamental Principles of Zazen. He begins, fundamentally speaking, the basis of the way is perfectly pervasive. How could it be contingent on practice and verification? The vehicle of the ancestors is naturally unrestricted. Why should we expend sustained effort? Surely the whole being is far beyond defilement. Who could believe in a, in a method to polish it? Never is it apart from this very place. What is the use of a pilgrimage to practice it? That's the beginning. And Dogen, Dogen is saying here that the whole world and everything in it is already Buddha, already perfect. This is the radical and rather baffling Mahayana Buddhist teaching that this actual world that we're, we all share and live in, difficult as it seems, is in reality not as it seems. It is in reality an all-inclusive Buddha realm. If that's so, then why would anybody need to practice? Why would they need to do anything special? Why would they run around looking for you know, meditation centers and retreats and teachers? Since it's already perfect, why would you need to do that? That's what he's saying. And, and he's saying this because, in fact, if you know about Dogen's life, it reflects his own existential dilemma. This was Dogen's burning spiritual question. This was his great doubt, his religious doubt. Because he grew up, you know, in Buddhism, and as a young person he had absolute faith in the teaching of Buddha nature. Everything, you know, is already Buddha. And yet, he couldn't escape the fact that internally, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, he knew he had to practice. He knew something was missing. So it was a disconnect for him. So this question was his question. Why do we have to practice? What is practice and why do we have to do it? And, and this question took him all the way to China, which was quite a voyage in those days. So he's serious about this. Here's the next sentence. And yet, so after saying all that, he says, and yet, and this is a very big and yet, and yet, 
if even a hair's breadth of distinction exists, the gap is like that between heaven and earth. Once the slightest like or dislike arises, all is confused and the mind is lost. So this is why we're so messed up, even though we're Buddha. Because our minds are designed to distinguish and discriminate. That's the way they work. That's how all perception, language, thought, and experience operates. And he says, that tangles us up in knots. And so, the fact that we are Buddha and we are perfect doesn't compute to us. We can't see that. We can't experience it. We can't know it. And this is what makes us so uncomfortable in this human life. Because somehow we know of our sacredness, but we can't taste it. And, and this was Dogen's exact problem. Now he goes on. Though you are proud of your understanding and replete with insight, getting hold of the wisdom that knows at a glance, though you attain the way and clarify the mind giving rise to the spirit that assaults the heavens, you may loiter in the precincts of the entrance and still lack something of the vital path of liberation. Even in the case of the one of Jedavana, this is the Buddha, who often was in a grove called Jedavana. Even in the case of the one of Jedavana, innately wise though he was, we can see the traces of his six years sitting erect. And in the case of the one of Shaolin, and that refers to Buddha Dharma, Bodhidharma, uh, Zen, first Zen ancestor in China who established a monastery at Shaolin, and in the case of the one of Shaolin, though he succeeded to the mind seal, we still hear of the fame of his nine years facing the wall. When even the ancient sages were like this, how could people today dispense with pursuing the way? Well, I think this translation, which is literally correct, doesn't do enough to make it clear what Dogen means, what he's saying here. What he's saying is that even if you think you're totally enlightened, and even if you did think you were a Buddha and everything was perfect, notice that Buddha and Bodhidharma, who were both certainly enlightened and very wise, did Zazen anyway. They did it. In other words, they did Zazen not to become awakened. They did Zazen because they were awakened. That's what Dogen is saying. Notice that they did it because they were awakened. So we should pay attention to that example. And we also should do Zazen not to become awakened, but because we are awakened. We shouldn't be trying to get awakened. That's only more of the same. To practice zazen, to try to get awakened, is to miss the awakening that is already there in our zazen, in that very swinging door that's there when we breathe. 
just as it was there for Bodhidharma and Buddha. And I think he's implying we can do that. We can practice just as they did with the same Dharma power that they had because they did it. And the strength of their practice somehow still pervades space and time and is there for us. Now, I'll, I'll read the next few short sentences, which is where I'm going to end here. I'm not going to go through the whole text. And here Dogen explains now, in a few sentences, what is this kind of zazen and why is it important? So here's, here, here, here it is. Therefore, stop the intellectual practice of investigating words and chasing after talk. Study the backward step of turning the light and shining it back. So that's what Zazen is. The backward step of turning the light and shining it back. So Zazen is not about having some thinking or understanding of something. It's not about having some experience of something. Maybe before Dogen went to China, he might have thought that that was the point. To understand the sutras, to, be, to understand the teachings, to understand the stories of the old Zen masters. But he learned from his teacher, Rujing in China, that that was not the point. The Zazen that Dogen is describing here, in this phrase, taking the backward step and reversing the light, shining it back, that is the classic practice of mind-only Buddha-Dharma. We talked about this when we were studying Vasubandhu, turning the mind around, revolutionizing the mind, so that instead of looking at external objects and fixating on external objects, and in this case, you and I are external objects. The body is an external object. Thoughts and perceptions are external objects. Experiences. I had an experience. That's an external object. So this is something else. Instead of all that, when you sit in Zazen, you turn the mind around to investigate itself, to illuminate itself. So there's no you, just like Suzuki Roshi says, no perception, no nothing. There's just presence, just existence, not even experience. He says, Suzuki Roshi, we read it just now, there's no you to say I. What we call I is just a swinging door that moves. So simple and plain, not difficult to do. But how do you do it exactly? I mean, how do you do this? Well, of course, it's obvious you can't do it, right? You can't do it. Anything that you could do would not be it. Because anything that you could do would always be you with an external experience or technique. So you can't do it. So you can just give up before you start. And why don't you just sit? Just sit and return to body and breath. It's that simple. And sit with a strength and a spirit of investigation and wonder. And let go of everything. And just let yourself cross over naturally 
to the next moment, which you will do and have always been doing from the beginning. So in a very literal and exact sense, there is nothing to this zazen that Dogen is describing. And then he says, body and mind will drop away of themselves and your original face will appear. That's what will happen when you take this backward step. If you want such a state, urgently work at such a state now. So, contemplate this awesome practice and just do it. Doing it with heart is the key. Making your best effort is all you need to do. You don't need to do it right. You don't need to have talent. You don't need to have skill. You don't need to have energy. You don't need proper performance of it. Just do it with heart. Because talent, skill, uh, performing it properly, all those things are external. They don't touch it. So in the light of that, I'll share one more passage from Suzuki Roshi with you. And, and, and this, I think you'll hear how that relates to what I've just read from Dogen. And this is a famous passage about the four horses. Uh, they're, they're all, almost all these passages, almost every passage in Zen Mind, begin, Beginner's Mind at this point is famous, I think. This one is very famous. Uh, in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses. Excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and really bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before the horse even sees the shadow of the whip, the horse will do this. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will also run, but it needs to feel pain in its body from the whip. The fourth one will only run when the pain, presumably from the whip, penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine, Suzuki Roshi says, how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. And if it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. This is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and also of Zen. You may think that when you sit in Zazen, you will find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. This, however, is a misunderstanding of Zen. If you think the aim of Zen practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. <laughs> I think that's true. This is not the right understanding. If you practice Zen in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. 
when you consider the mercy of the Buddha, how do you think Buddha will feel about the four kinds of horses? He will have more sympathy for the worst and for the best one. When you are determined to practice Zazen with the great mind of the Buddha, you will find the worst horse is the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of Zen, the actual feeling of Zen, the marrow of Zen. Those who find great difficulties in practicing Zen will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse the best. And we used to notice that at the Zen Center. People would come sometimes and they would be able to sit in the full lotus, you know, s up straight without moving at all, you know, and be like we would all be in awe of them. We, we were toiling, toiling there for years, you know, and we were struggling and they would be able to do this. And, and usually they would be around for a week or two, and then after that you never saw them anymore, you know. <laughs> it was the ones who were really struggling, who were just suffering a lot, not only in their zazen, but everywhere in their lives, who were the ones who became, the, the worst horses became uh, the good Zen students. So that's what I had to say for tonight. And we're going to go into groups in a minute. But a couple of things, uh, just um, by way of announcements and so on, so I can get this in before I forget. First, uh, you know, those of you who are in the practice period, we, we have Shusot teas, and I want you to remind you about how important that is. Now, Anlor has got the COVID. She's sitting there with her hat on and everything. She's probably miserable, but she's sitting there. And she has the COVID, and I don't know, maybe, I don't know what this means, and I don't even know how you go to one of the teas, so I don't know anything about this. All I'm saying is, go to a tea when you can and when Anlor is available, because uh, it's a really important part of the practice period. I'm reminding you. Um, second, yeah, go ahead. We have one online tomorrow. Okay, one online tomorrow. And I guess through the website they can figure out how to come? Yeah, good. So I guess that means that you're well enough to go to the T, even if you're... And nobody's going to get COVID online. No. So, uh, I also I wanted to tell you that uh, I will be, I, on Saturday, today's Wednesday, on this Saturday, I'm going away for a week, because this week in February is the only week in the year when we know that all of our grandchildren are available, because they're very busy people, and we cannot get their attention, except this one year, one week, every year, we know. So every, every year we always get together with our whole family, all of our grandchildren and children. So we will be doing that this next week. I'll be back the following Saturday. And it just turns out that next week, anyway, I was not going to give the seminar talk because Ben Connolly, who is the author of the Vasubandhu text that we studied for several months and that I just referred to, 
he's going to give the Dharma talk uh, next Wednesday, and Jeff uh, Bickner will be the host and take care of the community, but the talk will be given by Ben. And we tried to get him, of course, during the time we were studying his text, but we couldn't, so this is when he could come. Also, I wanted to tell you that tomorrow morning, tomorrow is the 15th of February, which is the traditional day for the Buddha's Parinirvana, and so tomorrow morning, after our second zazen, <clears throat> we're going to have, immediately after, we'll set up for five or ten minutes and give everybody a chance to have a quick break, and then around 8, 10, 8, 15, tomorrow morning, Pacific time, we're going to have our ceremony online to commemorate Buddha's Parinirvana. It'll be on the same link as the sitting. But I'm telling you now because um, actually um, in the ceremony, you know, we, we always make offerings to the Buddha. And um, in the ceremony, there's a couple minutes where we say, anybody at home, if you have your home altar and want to make an offering to the Buddha, do it now. So I'm telling you that now so you can be ready for tomorrow morning. You can offer the Buddha a flower, a cup of tea, an apple, a copy of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I'm sure the Buddha would enjoy that. Uh, or whatever you'd like to offer in your own altar. You can put it beside your seat. Uh, if you want to come to the ceremony, you can do that. Also reminding you that two weeks from now, on the 28th, we're going to be very confident that Ann Laura is going to be perfectly fine. She's going to take her Paxlovid and knock that COVID out immediately. And two weeks from, tonight, from today, she'll be with all of us at the church in Tiburon and also online. So we have not had a seminar in person for a while because last month there was a storm. So remember, put it on your calendar, those of you in the Bay Area, February 28th, please come and support Ann Laura as she gives her first Shuso Dharma talk. And after that, we're going to practice the Bodhisattva ceremony. So it'll be a wonderful evening. Please come. Okay, enough of that. Now, you're going to go into groups. So this time, since I actually had two different subjects tonight, uh, I, I give you a choice between those two subjects. So the, the first one, maybe the one that I finish with and maybe is uppermost in your mind at the moment, is Zazen. Talk about breathing and your experience in Zazen of the coming and going of the self, your experience of the swinging door and how, what that means to you and how you practice with that and whether that always, you know, these things may or may not make any sense to you and if they don't make sense to you then you can say so and talk about that. So that, that's topic number one. Topic number two is the question of uh, long-standing relationships in practice. If you'd like to, if, if that's on your mind and you'd like to talk about that, go ahead and talk about that. Okay, so um, everybody, I think, knows how these groups go with uh, about three minutes for each speaker, not interrupting, but really, really listening generously. Not critically, but just letting the words of the person come in. Three minutes each, and then a few minutes maybe at the end. And you'll self-time, I think. I forget. Is the Zoom host putting out, like, next speaker, next speaker? Anyway, whether they are or not, it's good to self-time. 
So, uh, like the breakout rooms. Uh, so I think that maybe they should be, uh, by the time they get in them, about uh, three times three times three is nine. So I'd say about 12 to 14 minutes. Okay, and then we'll have plenty of time when everybody comes back to uh, talk together. So I'll say goodbye, and I'll see you in about 15 minutes. Thank you.